Well, you may want to uh, grab a Bible or uh, pull this passage up on your phone. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 21, uh, what Tony just read for us a moment ago. It's the next passage that's coming up in the lectionary. Um, of course, you can look at it in your bulletin too, but we may go just a little beyond what's there a few times, so it might be helpful to, to have something else to look at. Um, we're going to try to do two things this morning, uh, two moves that I always like to make. Number one, we want to understand the text. What is it saying? What does it mean? What's going on here? But we're understanding it not simply to uh, gain a new piece of information or file away some interesting new facts or to satisfy our curiosity. We want to understand the text uh, so that we can submit ourselves to it, so that we can receive this truth in real and meaningful ways in our own lives. So part one is let's understand what's going on, but part two is uh, how does this truth get real for us? How do we say yes to it today? So that's the work ahead of us. So let's jump into it here uh, in Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 5. Now, as we, as we look here, we find Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem. After keeping a relatively low profile uh, for much of his public ministry, he has now moved uh, to acts of incredibly bold, direct confrontation with the powers of the world. We know that he uh, came in the triumphal entry with these huge crowds into the city of Jerusalem, not with an army, uh, but he still, he comes into the temple and he clears it out. He drives out those selling, those buying, and all the animals that they have, effectively shutting the temple down. I mean, its main function is sacrifice, and without these animals and the buying and selling of them, that's impossible. So he has shut the temple down and he has occupied it. That's not something that just happened on that day. It tells us that he come back, came back every day and essentially occupied the temple for most of a week. And during that time, he's there teaching every day, all day long, before going to sleep on the Mount of Olives at night. Uh, that he would do this is incredible. Uh, it's, it's wild, right? Like, uh, the temple is the center of the religious and political life of the Jewish people, so who <laughs> takes over the temple? Uh, the, the question that would be in everyone's minds as he's doing this uh, is, who does this guy think that he is? Uh, the crowds would be asking that question. The religious leaders would certainly be asking that question in a negative way. They don't want him there, but they can't stop him because of the crowds. Although, of course, they will ultimately move to stop him uh, as he's going to be betrayed a night soon and taken to the cross. Uh, the move that he seems to be making, what it would seem to communicate, is very uh, deeply messianic. So for the Jewish people, they're looking for a king, great David's greater son, who's going to come and overthrow all the bad guys and set Israel in the right place. Now from the very beginning, uh, temple and king have been deeply connected to each other. David wanted to build it, Solomon did. And so ever since, anyone who wanted to claim that legacy would want to present themselves as a champion for the temple. Uh, Herod, who was a very illegitimate king, just a few decades earlier had done this huge restoration project for the temple uh, to make it beautiful in, in an effort to establish his own legitimacy. So everyone's thinking this is a move that Jesus is showing himself as the true king uh, by uh, renewing the temple, by purifying it. Now his followers love being there. They're excited. They're amazed to be in this place. And they're looking around at the stones. Now, this is a little bit of a side, but I don't know if you've ever had a chance to go to Israel. I, I got to go a number of years ago, and uh, I mean, of course, the temple's not there anymore, but even the foundations are incredibly impressive. They still are. There's one stone uh, that's 45 feet wide and 11 feet tall. That's from that window to that window over there, one stone, and, and pretty much up to, from here to there, 
right? Like I've seen skyscrapers and I'm still standing looking at this like, wow. And the, and the apostles, you know, I mean, they came from a fishing village. So they're blown away by the beauty and majesty of the temple. But Jesus' response, which they would expect to be, yeah, and we're going to make it better than it's ever been. Instead of that, he says, all of this is about to come crashing down. It's all coming down. Now, this is a shocking thing for him to say. It's it's the worst kind of of prophetic warning. This has happened to Israel once before when the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple, and it was the ultimate picture of God's judgment, the ultimate bad news. Um, For them, it's sort of like if you went to the doctor and you felt like you were in pretty good health, but you had a few issues that you needed to work out, and you're expecting the doctor to get you to perfect health, but instead the doctor comes back and says, uh, you're terminal. And not only are you terminal, but everyone you know is terminal. And the question that you would ask is, of course, how much time do I have? Well, that's exactly what they said. Jesus, when are these things going to happen? How much time do we have? His response is not to tell them how much time they have, but instead to explain more about what's going to happen. And he tells them four things are going to happen. It's a little bit hard to follow the way he describes it, but four things are going to happen. The temple and Jerusalem are going to be destroyed, but that's not the end. That's just the beginning. You, my followers, and my other followers will be persecuted. Three, there will be signs and tumults, vast and terrible, very much like the ones that are coming upon Jerusalem, but they're going to come to the whole world in waves, perhaps. But these, indeed, these tumults are going to come on the whole cosmos. The heavens themselves will be shaken, but the end of all this, the conclusion of it, is that the Son of Man will come in power and glory, bringing redemption. That's what Jesus says. So what does all this mean? Jesus is saying, you expect me to be a temple-restoring Messiah. I'm not here to renew the temple. The temple is at an end. So the question, are you the Messiah or just some prophet of doom? No, I am the Messiah, Jesus says, but in a way that's much larger than you thought. I'm not merely great David's greater son, though I am that, here to restore Israel. I am the son of man. Now, the son of man is a strange title. If you listen to it carefully, it could literally mean any male, right? Uh, Every male is a son of man. Uh, But it's one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. He calls himself this a lot in the Gospels. Uh, So what does he mean? Why does he call himself this? Well, back in Daniel 7, uh, way back in the Old Testament, Daniel the prophet sees one that he describes who looks like a son of man. In other words, who looks like a human being who is coming and receiving authority and honor and power and dominion forever and ever from the ancient of days. In other words, the prophet sees a human being sitting in the place of God. And Jesus says, that's me. That's what's going on. In other words... I'm not going to renew this temple. I'm coming here. I'm here to renew all things on heaven and on earth. It's bigger than you thought, but not yet. First, there are going to be hard days for the world, for the city, for this temple. And he doesn't say it, but it's implicit if you understand what's going on. Also for him, because again, he's about to go to the cross. So that's what's going on. We have a picture of Jesus, not just as a Messiah, uh, but as uh, the Messiah in a cosmic sense, coming to renew all of creation, but there are hard days first. 
Now, when we read this passage, if you're home and this is the next thing that comes up in your Bible reading and you, and you pick it up, the first thing that we usually notice is that it's talking about persecution and Jesus coming back. And we immediately uh, focus on the same question the apostles asked, and that is, do we need to be concerned? Uh, is this going to happen to us? Are you, talking, are you just talking to them? Are you talking to people who are going to come later? Or are you talking to me? And the answer seems to be all of the above. Uh, In in Scripture, prophecy often works in concentric circles with multiple layers of fulfillment, and that seems to be what's happening here. Jesus definitely has his eyes on something that's going to happen right away, but also he has his eyes on things further out, all the way up until what we would call the end of time. So there's no question Jesus is talking about something immediate and practical. This is a very practical warning for the people standing around him. We can say this because Jesus says the temple's coming down and Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Well, that happened within 30 or 40 years of his standing here and saying these things. Uh, Rome marched on Israel in 70 AD. Uh, They they destroyed Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. Josephus, a historian from that period, tells us that more than a million of the Jews died when Jerusalem was destroyed, that 100,000 plus were enslaved, and that the rest were scattered the city and the temple were burned to the ground. Uh, a, military, a Roman military encampment replaced it, and later a Roman colony was there with the temple to Jupiter on the Temple Mount. Uh, the sacred items that only the high priests would have seen were taken from the temple and marched through the city of Rome. And the nation of Israel would cease to function as a political entity for almost 2,000 years after this. And the religious life of the Jewish people was permanently changed with no temple to worship at. So what I'm saying is that in many ways, what Jesus is predicting was the end of the world for the people that are listening to him. It was the end of the way of life for the Jewish people. It was the end of the world, but it wasn't the final end. It was a real, practical, imminent warning, but there was so much more. Because again, Jesus seems to be talking about judgment beginning there, about these tumults and terrors beginning there, but spreading out over the earth. It's sort of like uh, in the, in later on whenever he's sending out his followers and he says that the gospel will go from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It seems like it's kind of like that, this, this judgment, this, this, these terrors that are going to roll out across the world. Uh, but ultimately, uh, he has his eyes on something that hasn't even happened yet. And of course, that's the coming of the Son of Man, the real end of history when he returns and overthrows all the powers of darkness uh, forever and ever and rules and reigns in an unmitigated way, bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And, and so because Jesus was talking about something imminent and also something far away, um, the, the instructions that he gives them for dealing with this reality apply It applied to them way back then, but they also apply to us, and they also apply as far forward into the future as it takes for him to return. The main takeaway, the good news here, the main point that he's making, what he wants them to understand when these terrible days come, is that the end of the world, or what seems to be the end of the world, does not mean that God has lost or that he has forgotten his people. As hard as it will be to believe when everything comes tumbling down, even the temple, your God will be victorious and he will rescue his people. All this bad news will not mean that he's lost. 
They're going to need to understand this in a significant way in just a couple of days when Jesus is crucified. It's going to look like the end of the world to them. It's going to look like they've lost. But it's not, it's not the end. In fact, it's a sign of God's victory. So it will be with the fall of Jerusalem and subsequent similar things that seem like the end of the world uh, to Christians in other times and places. This is the good news that we hang on to in terrifying times, that it does not mean that our God has lost. He will win the victory. He will redeem. And I think this is the place uh, where this passage gets very real for us today, where we can transition from just understanding of what it means to thinking about how it actually has the power to change our lives. How do we say yes to this? How do we respond? Well, are we living through the end times? That's a question we always want to know. The truth is, it's hard to know. The early Christians were pretty sure that Jesus was going to return within their lifetime, and they had good reason to think that. We know that he didn't. Um, There have been many points in the history of the world when I'm sure it seemed like it was the end. Uh, If you had lived through the fall of Rome, uh, if you had lived through the Black Death, I mean, the people who lived during that time in Europe, they really believed it was the end of the world. Uh, if, if you had lived through the rise of, of Nazi Germany as they were taking over the world, and, or it seemed like succeeding in that initially and trying to exterminate the Jewish people, it would have seemed, no doubt, like the end of the world. And, and so again, uh, the upshot is Jesus doesn't say a lot to help us know whether we are in that moment or not, but what he does do is tell us how to respond when we find ourselves in such a place whether it is an end of the world where it seems like the end of the world or whether you're actually living through the time when he actually returns. Now, whether this is the end or not that we're living through, we can say for sure that the world is changing around us in ways that are deep and frightening to us often. Now, I've explained this in a lot of times, but I have to touch it here too, uh, to say that we're living through the end of Christendom. Now, Christendom isn't Christianity, right? It's not Christianity. Christendom is what we call the time in Western civilization uh, when, when Christianity holds power and influence in the public space. So for the first 300 years of the church, uh, Christ, most people didn't understand who Christians were. They didn't understand what they believed. And to be a Christian probably meant uh, that people looked down on you or that you were going to be persecuted. But then Rome adopted Christianity formally as its religion, and suddenly the situation changed so that if you wanted a good job, if you wanted to be more respectable, uh, you probably needed to become a Christian. And that's how things have been for the last 1,700 years, give or take. Uh, But we know that Christendom has come to an end in Europe. It's no longer the case uh, that Christianity holds a lot of public credibility there or influence, and, and that stopped being true in parts of the United States. It's probably still Christendom in Little Rock, Arkansas, but probably not for that long. Living through a time when Christianity is losing public influence and, and power in formal, like, public ways is scary. It's destabilizing. It makes us afraid. Now, again, I've argued in other places that it's actually not all bad news. In fact, it may be very good news for the church that this is happening, uh, that God's at work in this. But Jesus is telling us, if it feels like the end of the world to us right here, what to do about it, how to respond When the world is changing around you in ways that it feels like you're living through the end of the world, what should you do? So the rest of this chapter I'm going to call Jesus' instructions for living through the end of the world, or what feel like, at least, feels like the end of the world. He says about four things. The first thing he says, he says, and again, you can follow me in the text here. He says, many will come in my name. See that you're not led astray. 
Many will come in my name. See that you are not led astray. This has been true in every time of great upheaval in the Western world. Jesus' name is powerful. And those seeking power have often tried to use it for their own ends. Now, Jesus is not saying, don't listen to anyone who claims to follow me. He's saying that at times of great tumult, of great upheaval, there will always be people who are trying to use my name for their own purposes, to gain and consolidate power. So, uh, times of tumult are, are exceptionally important times for the church to exercise great discernment in distinguishing uh, who to follow. Uh, and, and he doesn't give a lot of clarity about how to, how to know the difference, but again, it seems implicit in what he says about those coming in my name, those claiming to be him, perhaps, or those claiming to be sent by him. And it seems that he's saying there's a distinction between those who merely use his name and those who submit to his ways and follow him. It is not enough simply to use Jesus' name. Uh, but, but indeed, one must submit to his ways and follow him. Now, this is an important warning. Uh, Jesus leads with it because he recognizes that this will be a temptation, that it will be tempting for his people, even for his faithful people, uh, to follow uh, because uh, they will be afraid, because they'll be seeking security and hope uh, when things are scary. And this is clear because the next thing he says is, when you hear of wars and tumults, when you hear of wars and tumults, not if, but when, Like, really scary things are going to happen, things that make you feel unsafe and destabilized. But when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. Do not be terrified. Now, this doesn't mean don't feel afraid. I think it it has everything to do with how we respond. It doesn't mean don't take wise action. Don't pretend that there's nothing scary happening. Don't ignore the danger. I mean, later in the chapter, he tells those in Jerusalem, hey, when you see these things begin to happen, flee, run and hide, protect yourselves. But what he is saying is, when, things, when it feels like the world's being turned upside down, don't be controlled by fear. Don't let it run your life or define your decisions. Why not? <laughs> Um, he's not saying you don't need to be afraid because nothing bad's going to happen. He says, do not be terrified, and then in the next breath, they will persecute you. But this will be your opportunity to bear witness. I will give you a mouth and wisdom, and none will be able to withstand or contradict your witness. In other words, he's not saying you don't have to be afraid. Don't be terrified because everything's going to be all right right now. He's saying you don't have to be afraid because even when things are crazy, even when they're scary, even when it feels like the end of the world, I will be with you in that time and place. And I will win. And my victory will be your victory. Indeed, it is exactly in a time and place like this that it feels like the end of the world when you will have this opportunity, this beautiful and very important opportunity to show the world who I really am through your life, through your witness, by being true to me, not just in name, not just to my name, but to my ways. He even goes on to say, some of you they will put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. How can both of those things be true? How can we hold that together? It's because real trouble will come, but it pales in comparison. He will overcome all that evil. And Jesus is saying, you will be with me in my victory, So you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to act on fear 
or to try and control and defeat the evil that you see in your own power. Instead, be faithful to me. This is how you fight the real enemy. This is how the victory is won. By being faithful to Jesus, to his ways and to his name. By living in faith in this way. This is good news to us, church, in times of upheaval, in times of fear. We've all experienced the truth that that to be afraid of a thing is often worse than the thing itself. Uh, My kids, right, like if they hear that they're going to have to get a shot, that can overshadow like three or four days of a week, you know, there's just nothing but thinking about this terrible thing that's going to come. And then the, you know, the pain lasts for like a second and a half. But but this is also true uh, for much more serious things in Christ, One of the most fundamental truths about Christianity is that Jesus has overcome the power of death. That the promise of the resurrection has removed the sting of death. We will still die, and that's still hard, and it's still a real cause of grief. But we don't have to live in fear of death, not even of death, because we trust that Jesus has overcome it. Again, this is fundamental to Christianity. A big part of the gospel, of the good news, is that we do not have to be controlled by the power of fear. And to be freed from the power of fear isn't just a relief, although it certainly is that. It opens up joy and wholeness in our lives, even in times that are scary. But it's also a mighty shield against one of the enemy's most powerful weapons. Because he he chooses to use terror to get us to act in ways that are contrary to our identity in Christ, uh, to believe that it's appropriate to use any means necessary to protect ourselves, Uh, to to begin to see others as our enemies so that we will do the enemy's work for him in Jesus' name. But Jesus is saying, don't even let the end of the world cause you to abandon me. Be loyal to me, not just in name, but in your ways. Because in Christ, even these world-shaking kinds of troubles are a sign of hope. Not an indication that everything has gone wrong, but an indication that our redemption is drawing near. And it's so helpful to us, all these years later, 2,000 years later, that many of those who listened to these words from Jesus listened to him and obeyed, and then many have ever since. We wonder if we will face persecution, but there's no question that all over the world, that any year on the calendar in the last 2,000 years, there have been Christians who did face persecution, right? That's just a reality in the world. Whether we do or not, many have and are. And many of them have followed Jesus' own example as he went to the cross, being faithful in the darkest of times, and rather than being terrified when persecution came, using those hard times to live and speak as a witness living a kind of fearless faith that echoes down through the ages and that we stand on today. Again, the point isn't that we should try and go and get ourselves killed uh, for Jesus because that's what real Christians do. The invitation is to live a life of faithfulness, loving our enemies, trusting that Jesus really will win, and refusing to act in hatred or fear against those that we disagree with. Now, doing this in an era when Christendom continues to break down It's hard, it's difficult, but it's so powerful when we do it, and it shows the world who Jesus really is. So friends, in a few minutes, we're going to come to the table. As we come, we have things to submit and things to receive. As the world continues to change around us in ways that scare us 
and destabilize us. The question that this passage asks is, how is fear at work in your life? How is it affecting what you think about all day? How is fear affecting the way that you see other people? How is it affecting who you listen to and follow? In this place of fear, hear Jesus' words again. Many will come in my name. See that you're not led astray. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. They will persecute you. But this will be your opportunity to bear witness, again, with our words and with our lives. Because the Son of Man is coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Submit whatever fear you're carrying to Jesus. Receive his love and the promise of his victory in that place as he invites you to live as a witness to his love and his power, power that can never be conquered by the power of this world. So you don't have to be afraid of it, even in this era of fear and confusion. Lord Jesus, we pray that the power of your spirit would work these things in us and transform our fear into trust and into your love, that we may indeed show the world who you are, especially at times when it needs it the most. And we pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.